0: Okay, welcome to the very first Serendipity Sessions podcast episode with Remy Storak, your host, the author of An Arsenal of Gratitude, Waging War on Mediocrity and Regret. Um, This is celebrating the blooper reel, that is, real life and navigating through a lens that makes us the hero of our own stories. So I'm going to share my story and just kind of introduce myself. It's a fairly long story but bear with me it's wicked so my life started kind of at the age of four when I was diagnosed with leukemia and it wasn't until I was 20 years old that my mom was able to tell me the gravity of the situation that my bloodstream was like 90 to 95% cancer cells by the time I was diagnosed and so I had about 24 or 48 hours to get a blood transfusion or I would have died and so Three and a half years later, three heart procedures and three years of chemotherapy later, I'm alive and well and as good as could possibly be. And uh, I get to say that was the best thing that ever could have happened to my life because it got me connected to Kids Cancer Care Foundation of Alberta and got to go to the summer camp, which it had gone through multiple um, variations as it had developed as a nonprofit. I got to go to this camp where siblings and survivors, survivors and siblings got to go and be kids again for a week. And they got to take the bubble off of their life and experience being a kid again. And so for kids age seven to 17, you got to go to this camp, be kids again. And there's this camaraderie. The best friends that I had were double brain tumor survivors, amputees, blind in one eye. And it put things in perspective to me that three heart procedures is really nothing. And I got off really lucky. And so that was a unique mentality to begin my life and carry through my adolescence. Um, but it kind of set me off to a very different normalcy as this time that I was most excited for throughout my life every summer to go back and be among these people who are celebrating life to such a rich capacity. As much as there was miracles, there was the realities that came with it, that we would all frantically be giving each other our mom's phone number. So it was like, make sure we get to go back to the same week of camp next year. And we would arrive next summer and we'd be like, oh, it's so amazing to see you. Until I was 11 years old and we're all having this like uh, gathering again, just celebrating being together and someone was missing. And so... Our friend had the younger nine-year-old sister had to come up to us and say that uh, our friend is no longer with us anymore. And he had the same cancer that I had. And so us 11-year-old kids are now experiencing survivor's guilt. And we're processing that as a bunch of young kids. And so the conclusion that we came up to was that, well, our friend can't be here anymore. So we have to live twice as much life because he doesn't get the chance to anymore. And so we made this promise to each other that if we were ever bestowed an adventurous opportunity, like we have to do it. And so courage became a massive focal point in our lives. And that was another blessing that came out of what was essentially a very difficult thing that brought us together. So fast forward from there. What I witnessed from the counselors because these it's a nonprofit they weren't paid, and so the most valuable person that these counselors and mentors were to us was the most goofy, fun-loving, joyful person you could possibly be, and most selfless and Whenever I left that camp, I realized that's not how the world operated. People are always going on who is making the most money and who you had to like undercut to get to that position. And so this was a value that seemed very foreign to the real world, quote unquote. But uh it was something that I really gravitated to and I found very effortless because of um getting to be a part of that environment since the age of seven. And so every single summer, up until the age of 17, I was full time or I became like a full-time counselor and did everything I could as an opportunity to give back. And uh at the age of 18 full summer. And I was like, I don't care if I have to work 10 months a year so I can do this every single summer. Like, this is what I'm really, really good at. I can't imagine ever leaving this. Um, but the adventure called and my two older brothers offered for us to be the big first big game horseback guides to bring horses back into the Northwest territories in 40 years. Because 40 years ago, four guys and 18 horses trailed this 500 kilometers or about 300 miles from the middle of the Yukon where the road ends into the Northwest Territories to do these big game off-grid hunting expeditions for about four months. And it takes about 12 marathon days back to back just to get into the Northwest Territories and the same thing to get out. And so on their way out, they got caught in this huge long blizzard and two guys froze to death and they had to leave the other horses they had to leave all the horses out there and they, they died. And so the two guys got medevaced out and nobody had done it since. And so my two older brothers were like, let's make it a family. <laughs> and so in the spirit of honoring the promise that I made to my friends, it's like, I have to rise to this occasion. Right. And so I dropped the thing that I loved most I, because it was overlapping seasons. I couldn't do kids cancer care as well. And I went uh, to be this big game horseback guide with my brothers and it was probably the most like heartbreaking thing I'd ever done because I went from being of maximal service and really meaningfully entangled with everybody around me to just getting my ass kicked by these horses (laughs) and just being in the middle of nowhere, not really being able to justify, you know, making a meaningful difference. And so despite this being an incredibly exotic, unique experience, um, it was my brother's passions, but it wasn't necessarily mine, but it was a call to adventure and I had to answer, right? And so, so it came to be that I was very resentful of this opportunity and I was thinking of how I could possibly go back and like be of service. And it came to the point I was in such a, a difficult headspace that I was considering. How could I break my arm or my leg in the least painful way so I could get medevaced out of here? And it was day 28. I was journaling and uh, I would hit shuffle on my iPod as like a spiritual, like, Hey God, like give me a message, something, you know? And in this moment, (laughs) I hit shuffle on my friend's iPod, which all this music I didn't know. And the song called, uh, cradle to the grave by five finger death punch came on. And the lyrics were very literal to the sense of like the blood that runs within my veins. It keeps me from ever being the same. And it makes me being strong, love me or hate me. I walk alone. And so whatever that did in that exact moment gave me the clarity that if I believe in anything spiritual whatsoever, I just didn't come here to die. God would not bring me to it if he's not going to bring me through it. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to finish the season. I had run-ins with grizzly bears. I was surrounded by wolves. I was swept down glacier rivers. Um, I was borderline hypothermic at one point. It is nonstop, unbelievable experiences. And I was really resentful the first time around because I felt like I was just taken away from the thing that meant the most to me. But as I came out, After 110 days off grid, I told all my friends that no matter what I say, like, I do not want to go back there. There's nothing that could ever make me want to go back. Like that was awful. It was an exotic experience, but nothing would ever bring me back. And so me being an 18, 19 year old kid who got like one wicked big paycheck, I was still in my party phase and I was partying my life away, hosting for all my friends and uh, had no concept of uh of moderation and so i really was like running out of money quickly and uh it was kind of getting too late to get a job again and i was having these multiple revelations on top of each other that despite me being back home and being the safest i've ever been i had lost my gratitude and whenever i prayed if i did i would be like hey god i haven't talked to you in a while And it would be more of a complaint than it was um, a relationship with a higher power to any degree. And so I'm like, that's a bad relationship with a friend, let alone your creator, right? Hey, haven't talked to you in a while, need a favor, right? And so I realized the most grateful I'd ever been was when I was in the most difficulty I'd ever been, which was guiding. And so it was like every time I had to wade through a river carrying my shotgun with me to go wrangle the horses every morning just walk to the will walk through the wilderness for hours and hours on end bumping into grizzlies all these different scenarios um just like truly being at the mercy of the world i just felt like i had uh yeah it was like this divine power for me i didn't come here to die but then so i had this courage in an environment that it made sense i needed to be courageous But when I came home, people saw me as this courageous mountain horseback guide, but then I'd be afraid to talk to girls or uh, hop on a meaningful opportunity. And so I was courageous in an aspect that put me on a pedestal in people's minds and it built my ego to a degree, but it didn't translate to all the other things that I was hoping to be a courageous person about. And it made me feel torn in my identity. And so I told my friends, I'm going back for a second season. They said, you told us not to let you do that. I said, yes, yes, I know. Um, I know what I'm doing this for. And I need to like go find God again. And so I had decided in my mentality that I didn't know what I was getting into the first first time around. So I was allowed to complain. But now that I knew what I was getting into, I just surrender my ability to bitch. It just doesn't make sense because I signed up for it knowing exactly how difficult it could be. And so my brothers being the same brothers and you know, it was extremely difficult and these horses are like falling through the mud um, and we're having to save them out of this marsh and all these crazy things that are happening. It was very stressful and they're getting mad at me because I was way more Zen this time around. And they're like, why aren't you mad? I was like, what do I win? We're just gonna have to get through it anyway, so whatever. And so it felt like I had learned a lesson in a major way because I had re-entered the same arena and I was a completely different man just because I chose a different mentality to approach life. And I just wanted to like find God again and be one with like every moment that's like, God, keep me safe, keep me warm, keep my feet sturdy as I'm walking through this river, keep me dry, keep me alive, you know? And so as soon as I felt like, okay, I learned my lesson. What's next, God? Don't ask that question unless you want to get your ass handed to you with another lesson. And so fast forward to season two, about day 67. Uh, We were at this familiar camp called Coons Camp, and it was our favorite place. It was just wide open, like beautiful, lush area. You could see uh, in every direction really well. Um, everything, the horses didn't go too far in the morning and the wrangles and everything about that place, like all of us, we just really loved. We made a promise to each other as brothers that don't ever split up because there's no promising if I took my horses around a valley one way and we met up in an hour that I am not going to bump into a grizzly and backflip. And so we just promised each other not to split up in that regard. But we got comfortable enough that we hunted every direction we possibly could for three or four days and saw absolutely nothing because the year prior to winter came a month early and the caribou migration like walked through our valley. But then this year, like the weather was normal. It was still summer, and so there was no migration. So we're like, okay, like we gotta go down the valley. My brother said, I'm gonna go down the valley. Uh I'll be back in three days, I promise. And I haven't had a break in 67 days, so I was like, Bye-bye. Have a wonderful time. You know, I'll just take my six horses, hang out here. He took himself and a hunter, uh, eight and eight horses down the valley. And I got to relax for the first time in 67 days. And so in this new monumental lesson, it was day two of three. And I was eating caribou steaks around a fire at dinner. And I had my six horses in a semicircle behind me with this S shaped river in front of me. And this grizzly comes out from a hundred yards away and waddles right up to the other side of the river. And it stands upon its back legs and I have my gun there ready in self-defense at all times. Bears aren't very aggressive, like 95% of them are good, but it smells my food. And so I pop a shell into the shotgun and I'm screaming bloody murder at this thing, like, do something. And it does not even look me in the face. It stands up on its back legs and it's looking all over my head. My horses are looking at it. Horses are looking back. It gets back on its four legs and walks off into the bush. I'm like, that's way scarier. It didn't even, it didn't even like recognize my existence as I'm screaming at it from like 20 feet away. And so I'm like, okay, well, it's going to come back in the middle of the night because it knows I have food. And so all of my horses have bells on them and hobbles. And so they tend to not go too far and I can hear their dinging into the distance, but they knew this bear was coming back. So ding, 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 ding into the dark. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm really alone for the first time here. I'm like, I just got to get through tonight. Ben's coming back tomorrow. He's, he's never going to believe this. I just got to get through tonight. And so I set up all these pack boxes in such a way, if I hear any rattling, I know an animal's come in and starts ravaging around and I can't fall asleep until 2.00 AM. And I wake up and I think I'm having a nightmare. I hear wolves howling and yapping around me and I try and close my eyes, but it was so loud that it was screeching in my ear. And my eyes just show up. I'm like, holy shit. Turn my headlamp on, roll it of my tent. I see three sets of eyes to my left, two to my right, and more behind me. Like, I only have four fucking bullets. <laughs> so I fire a shot in the air. It goes dead quiet. And I had everything set up to make this bonfire really quickly. So I light that up, and I'm like frantically looking in the darkness, waiting for something to happen. And it's just eerily quiet. And I'm just like, my brother's never going to believe this. He's never going to believe this. And so I'm just waiting for sunlight to start to rise. And everything had dispersed. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go wrangle these horses. But instead of following horse tracks, I had to follow wolf tracks on top of them. They went and followed and harassed my horses. And so they were in a terrible mood. I'm like, me too. Let's go. Ben's coming back today. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) And that whole day goes by, and I'm just frantically like can't sit still. I'm like, my brother's never gonna believe this. He's never gonna believe this. And the whole day goes by, the sun starts to set again, and Ben's not coming home. I was like, no way. Like, <laughs> all I had is his promise. He has the satellite phone. I have a satellite texture, but we can't communicate between each other. And so all I have is his promise, and that he's not coming home yet. So my brain goes, worst case scenario, that. There's a bear that wants my food now. There's wolves that want my food now. And he's gone in the distance somewhere. And I can't go down the valley and after him because he's like six plus hours down the way. And if I get hurt on the way, I'm an idiot. If he's fine or the the hunter's all right, and I have to go all the way back, I'm just putting myself in danger. I'm an idiot. I can't leave anything behind. I don't have enough horses to pick up the whole camp and go and find them. I'm pinned down in every sense. And so in this stress... I was like, God, like what could possibly justify this stress and just being pinned down in this situation? And my brother doesn't come back for day three, four, five, six, seven. So there's five days that I'm just like mentally like the worst case scenario, like something's wrong. And it's only progressively getting worse because all I had was his promise, right? And so I realized that I carried a Game of Thrones book, 500 kilometers by horseback just to have something to relax to. And I grew up loving fantasy worlds, everything about that, the creativity, how much people get invested in that. And I was like, what if I had the audacity to write a book and give 10% to kids' cancer care? And in that moment, that birthed my authorship. And that's what became of uh, my first fantasy book, The Reaper's Inception, Grimm's Prodigies. And that's what kept my head on straight. And so that became another... Even though it was the most terrified I had ever been, it was one of the most monumental situations I had ever been in. This serendipitous thing that created this authorship. Not that I was an incredible writer. I wasn't even a huge reader. I was a total fraud. It was like pure desire to have something to give back whether I died too soon in this life. And so writing these ideas out for what became my first fantasy novel is what kept my head on straight for those days. And uh Yeah, my brother came back and he had like this record book caribou um, and he was all smiles and swagger. I was like, I don't care. This was awful. (laughs) I am not excited about this situation whatsoever. So uh, again, fast forward, I, I left guiding that second season and I had lost my gratitude again, even though I went and I had this new profound realization. I'm like, I know I need to be an author. It's what I need to do. It's what I'm built for. It's like, I can do something. I don't have to be the person who works 10 months a year just to give back to kids cancer care for the two months and like be in a, a nonprofit position. Um, I can do something that could sustain me and then I could just live a philanthropic life. And once again, I was just being a party animal. I was being stupid. And so I was like, oh, I'll just go back to the wilderness where I have nothing but time with God and I'll write my book out there. And so I was lazy and I was partying with my friends. And to fast forward the story a little bit, I did the third season, things were as good as they could possibly be. But I ended up having to get medevaced out on uh, day 53, because I had lost like 25 pounds of mass and I'm not like a thick guy by any means. So like this tight shirt would have been a tarp on me at that point, my heart palpitations were happening very, very bad. And so that was a side effect of my three heart procedures is if I'm malnourished, my heart rate will go from 70 to about 230 beats a minute. And it won't stop for about 30 minutes, even if I'm sitting down. And so I'd lost all this weight. I'm like, I can't be roaming around in bear country alone and pass out. It just doesn't make sense. And so I got diagnosed with supraventricular tachycardia. And that just kind of closed my opportunity to be a guide anymore. I'm like, I couldn't go back. I was still like extremely underweight. And I'm like, okay, I just got to figure life out now. And so I just got a landscaping job and I promised my brothers, I'm like, hey, I got to get this book off the ground and do that. And to fast forward the story again, it was about a year and a half later, I got this book published. And I had this mentality that I could be a lone wolf. I can do this book and that my intentions were pure enough that as soon as I put this book out into the world, that I would just be like an immediate like next uh George R Martin new Tolkien you know and that it would just be like instant because my intentions are pure it's like oh it's a great story and it's giving back how wonderful but i got my ass humbled because i put all of my life savings into bringing this book to life and then i just assumed not knowing uh what my first paycheck was going to be about it and so i just assumed that it was going to be pretty high and I ended up going and buying like hundreds of dollars of candy for Kids Cancer Care because they were having like a Halloween weekend. It was like, oh, this will be like my, my first donation of sorts. And as much as I used to donate was uh, four times as much as my first royalty paycheck over three months. So like a huge, huge long time. It wasn't just like the first little while. Um, and that was like everybody that I'd leaned on. I was like, oh, everybody who supports me in my life will be like, really like stepping up to the plate but I was hoping to donate 10% and I was donating 400%. So now my concept of reality shattered because I was so delusional that even my selflessness had manifested in a way where I thought I was uh due or I was owed to be given like financial security and I was so obsessed with believing that it was just going to work out for me despite like the minimum effort, the very little I know. I didn't know how to market or anything meaningful in this capacity on top of self-publishing. So I didn't have anybody else in my corner helping dish this out. I thought it was just, gonna be, Oh, internet work, your magic. And so I had to ask for rent for the first time from my parents and all my money fears were manifesting. And I tried to like, ruin a really great relationship that i had because i'm like how am i supposed to give anybody clarity when my dreams are so audacious that it's putting me in these ridiculously bad financial situations where my heart is pure but how it's actually like showing up in reality i'm getting humbled to such a degree that now i have to ask help for for rent you know and so that was a really difficult time but again a serendipitous moment that brought me to be like i can't do this alone. I need to find people who are living out the kids' cancer care values as a lifestyle. And so I ended up going on this app called Shaper at the time. It no longer exists, sadly, but it was like a dating app, but for business people. And I ended up meeting, connecting with this gal named Rachel, who uh, uh, was a full-time retired mom to two kids at the time already. And she was like in her early 30s and was just like living the life of paying it forward. And I had never witnessed anything like that in my life before. And so many more things processed that it's like, even though I would like to be in this person's position, I was just like, oh, you're full of shit. There's no way, you're not real. And this person was speaking life into me like nobody ever had. I was sharing my desires to just be abundant enough that I could live from a state of overflow and give more to kids' cancer care and be like an undercover philanthropist basically, and just like show up and make people's day and not ask for anything. She was doing that. And she was saying, yeah, like all these things are possible for you. Um, And there's a genuine way to do that. And she introduced me to incredible connections who really framed my entire new narrative of what life could be, like introduced me to John Maxwell's inner circle, who he's worth looking up by by the way. Um, And yeah, I almost ruined a really incredible relationship because I said, why? Well, I, I kept calling bullshit on these really incredible people. And I'm like, I don't even have any money to offer you guys. I just want to make well on like the information that you guys operate your life through. And they said, we don't need your money. Like we have enough. If just like whatever we owe to you, whatever we pay forward to you, we just expect that you pay it forward to the next person. That's the only way we could justify this relationship. I'm like, I can do that. I will be the most humble, I will do what I have to do to become the man that can actually live out these values and not just be, you know, this egotistical horseback guide who's like leaning on a courageous moment to compensate for all the other things that I wasn't courageous about, learning how to be an actual servant of others in friendships, relationships, and just be holistically well. I had never witnessed people like that in my life where... Uh, even people in relationships were able to communicate calmly, um, take a step back emotionally and just say, hey, like, this is where my uh, insecurities are coming from. Here's where I want to actually show up. And so just have grace with me as I'm navigating these things. And it was just a, a brand new world to me. And it continually humbled me over and over. And that is how two years later, the project that really meant to come to be that I could live out my life story and celebrate the stories of kids cancer care. And what it takes to live a life of gratitude actionably and wage war on mediocrity and regret became an arsenal of gratitude, waging war on mediocrity and regret. And so if it wasn't for people like that, sowing into me for the sake of itself, believing that I was going to pay it for in some sense, I could not be the man I am today. And so out of all of these moments in my life that continuously put me on my ass and humbled me over and over thinking, oh, I had it all figured out. It was continuously moments that just broke my spirit. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. My delusion, despite it being out of pure intentions, I have no idea. And I really, really need help. And I need people who care about me and want to see the best of me. And I can reciprocate that care and that alone without all the monetary exchange. It never happened. There was no money exchange whatsoever that people could just possibly see something in somebody like me. Uh the moment that actually changed everything was one of the first conversations I had with this woman, Rachel. I was having all this guilt because I'm like I keep coming back from guiding and I keep getting lazy and I was like, I don't think things are working out for me yet because God hasn't forgiven me for the laziness that I've had. And as a spiritual person, she gave me this checkmate question that was, Are you open to considering that God has forgiven you? But you haven't forgiven yourself. And by pure logic of how that works, up into all forgiving God, I was like, oh yeah, I'm my own problem. I am my own bullshit. That's incredible. And that was the most <laughs> uplifting question and exposure I have ever felt in my life. And I was like, oh yeah, like I'm the problem. That's amazing. What a wonderful thing. That means I can do something about it. I can't point the finger elsewhere because then I have to wait for other things to happen. But if I'm the problem, I can do something about it. That's wonderful. And so from those people's example, unfolded this life of meaningful connections that has now developed to all these different opportunities to speak about things that I care about, to get into the mental health world, the addictions world, all these things that were exposed of me that I had to come over and now get to have this flag Planted of, oh, I've been there. I can actually hold people's hands and walk them through the flame because my diligence can be somebody else's deliverance. If I have the humility to be honest about what it was really like, to have my brokenness and the way that I fell flat. So I don't want to be the highlight reel. The blooper reel is what brought me to this abundant life. And it's not yet like financially abundant but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally, overflowing, overflowing. And so these serendipity sessions, I don't know what I'm going to say all the time, but I just want to show up and offer something that might be exactly what you needed to hear, because that's what people did for me. And then it was just the one thing that like really checked my bullshit and helped me get to the next stage in my life. And If I could offer that and be any amount of Shred of Hope to somebody else, that would be my serendipitous thing. And for us to continue celebrating the blooper reel of life, I'm going to crash course on gratitude, courage, truth, everything I can possibly offer. I'm going to bring out all my best friends on here, everything, these trauma-informed coaches, inner child coaches, addictions coaches, whatever people with badass stories who overcome and just have these overflowing mental states that have just so much to offer the world if they just uh, just had a little platform to uh, be heard by the right people. And just to do honor by the time that you've given me right now, I always want to be extremely grateful and do justice by that. And so I'm going to do everything I humanly can to deliver the most value that I possibly can. So that's my promise to you. And so as messed up as this is, as imperfect as it is, this is fumbling forward. And this is the first of the serendipity session, so thank you for coming. Here's to many more.